Good morning. Today is Sunday, the 11th day of December, 2016. Imagine an old man who does a podcast deciding to travel down memory lane and talk about toys from his youth. Will the young listeners roll their eyes and listen to something else? Find out on the 116th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. Thanks so much for having a cup of coffee with me today. Well, it's finally happened here in Chicagoland. We've been hit with the cold, and I'm glad I'm inside with a hot cup of java. So, this is the last Coffee with Jeff show of 2016. I'm taking the next three weeks off, but I will be back with a new and improved show on January 8th. Today's show is going to be a hint of how things might change next year. I mean, I'm still going to do stories like I've been doing, but I'm also going to change it up now and again, like on today's show. Today is a quick history of three different toys. I'm going to do things like that, like I've been talking about doing a show about strange films, and I've got enough for a couple of shows, and occasionally I'll do a show about three inventions, or three films, or three, I don't know, whatever. And I will also encourage listeners to let me know what they would like me to talk more about. I mean, if there's anything in your life that you've come across where you find yourself saying, I wonder where that came from, or... I wonder just who this Elon Musk dude is anyway. Let me know and I'll do the research. But on today's show, I'm going to talk about three toys that were incredibly popular in my day. Silly Putty, the Magic 8-Ball, and the Slinky. I'm sure that everyone over 40 had played with these at one time or another. I wonder, with all the intense video games we have today, do you think any child under the age of 10, would find the joy in seeing a spring walk down a flight of stairs. Hmm, I wonder. Come to think about it, I seem to remember that Slinkies didn't perform as well at home as they did on the commercial. I seem to remember it walking down like two stairs before coiling back up and stopping. I could be wrong, that was a long time ago. I've also read that Silly Putty doesn't pick up newsprint like it used to. I guess that's because printing technology has changed. Anyway, I hope all you youngsters will forgive me for this episode, but this old man does have a tendency to ramble on a bit, you know. Just be glad you're not hearing about my aches and pains. So now, if you've ever wondered about Silly Putty, the Magic 8-Ball, or the Slinky, here we go. And for the rest of you... Have a wonderful holiday. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. What is Silly Putty? Well, it's a real solid liquid. If you... Pull it so it'll go forever. 
like taffy. But if you give it a sharp tug, it'll break like a biscuit. Now, when you make Silly Putty round and drop it, it'll bounce higher than a rubber ball. And here's something else you can do with Silly Putty. Flatten it, press a picture in your newspaper, lift it, stretch it this way and that, and you'll get something that's really funny. Always put your Silly Putty back in its egg or it will run slowly away. You can buy Silly Putty for one dollar wherever toys are sold. And remember, nothing else is Silly Putty. It can bounce like a rubber ball, be shaped like Play-Doh, it'll break apart when hit sharply, and it can pull images right off the funny pages. It, of course, is Silly Putty. The history of Silly Putty begins during World War II. You see, rubber was very important to the war effort for things like rafts and tires, vehicle and aircraft parts, gas masks, boots, and all sorts of things. And because Japan had invaded rubber-producing countries, making rubber hard to come by, the United States had rationed its rubber products. In fact, citizens were encouraged to make their rubber products last longer and to donate anything extra that contained rubber to the war effort. Things like spare tires, boots, coats, anything that contained even the slightest bit of rubber. This led to an increased effort to create a synthetic rubber made out of non-restricted materials. The credit for this strange substance is usually credited to an engineer named James Wright at General Electric. In 1943, he substituted carbon, which is the main ingredient in rubber, with silicon. He combined boric acid and silicon oil and got a strange gooey glob in the bottom of his test tube. When he took that goop out of his tube, hoping he had found a new rubbery substitute, he dropped it on the floor and it bounced, so he named it Bouncing Putty. He also noticed that if he struck it with a hard blow, it would break apart and when left to sit, it would flatten out like a puddle of liquid. Because of all this, his new invention would be unusable as a new form of rubber. In fact, in 1945, Life magazine ran an article on this new putty, showing all the wonderful things it could do, but ended up its article with the phrase, For all its delightful characteristics, it has no known use. General Electric attempted for five years to find a use, but they finally decided that there was no practical use for bouncing putty. There's also a man named Earl L. Warwick, who, with Rob Roy McGregor, also claimed to be the inventor of Silly Putty. He was working for the Dow Corning Corporation and was conducting the same experiments as James Wright. So since the formula for Silly Putty is so simple, it is possible that both men came up with the idea at the same time. Though I've read that Earl's patent on the putty was made four years before Wright's, and the only reason that Wright is thought to be the inventor today was because that's the official Crayola story. You see, Crayola bought the rights to Silly Putty in 1977. In 1949, during a party at General Electric, James Wright met a toy store owner named Ruth Fallgatter. He told her about his invention. Ruth took it to a marketing consultant named Peter C.L. Hodgson, and the two decided to market this bouncing putty by selling it in a clear case in her store in New Haven, Connecticut, for the cost of $2. Though it sold moderately well, eventually Ruth decided to discontinue the item. Hodgson had other ideas. 
He was already $12,000 in debt, but decided to take a chance. He borrowed enough money to buy $147 of the stuff from GE, and, for no other reason that it was near Easter, decided to sell the gooey stuff in a plastic egg. I have to admit I always wondered why it came in a plastic egg. Anyway, he also began to play with the putty to see what else it could do. He noticed you could stretch it as far as the arms could reach, yet with a quick yank, it would snap apart. When it was squeezed, it would make a strange popping sound. He thought it was more than just bouncing putty. It was silly. It was, well, silly putty, and he decided to name it just that. He turned an old barn into a factory and began to package his new product. And for a while, it didn't go well. During the 1950 International Toy Fair in New York, Hodgson was urged to give up the idea. For six months, everything seemed dismal. But then in the summer of 1950, the New Yorker magazine ran an article on Silly Putty. A writer for the magazine came across the product at a Doubleday store in Manhattan and loved it so much he featured it in his Talk of the Town column. Within three days of the article, Hodgson had orders for more than 250,000 eggs. For a little bit of time, all seemed wonderful and Hodgson took out loans to increase production, but then... The same factor that led to the creation of Silly Putty also seemed to doom it. The Korean War broke out and the government set restrictions on the use of silicon. For the next year, the company struggled to keep afloat. But in 1951, the ban was lifted and the company quickly took off. Hudson kept the company going successfully until his death in 1967. After that, his son sold the company to the maker of Crayola crayons, Binny and Smith, a year later. Shall we gaze into the magic ball and see what the future holds for you? Come along. I'm going to take him up on a roof and overthrow him. Whip out your magic ball, Matty. Dickle, 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 mickle. Why, that's an eight ball. Sit right down behind it. The magic ball says you have not long to live. Oh, goody. <laughs> All out for Syracuse. Wow. Syracuse? This is where I get off. Where is he going? The boy's from Syracuse. Concentrate. Should I do my next story? The signs point to yes. Our story is, of course, the Magic 8-Ball. You know, in the 1940s, Three Stooges' anti-Nazi film called You Nazi Spy, there's a scene in which a large billiard ball, the 8-Ball, is used as a fortune-telling device. Whether this had anything to do with what we now call the Magic 8-Ball, I really don't know. Our story starts in the 1940s with a woman named Mary Carter. Mary was a clairvoyant from Cincinnati. She performed something she called the Psycho Slate. The Psycho Slate was a chalkboard. When one of her clients wanted answers, the chalkboard would be covered in a box, and then the sounds of chalk squeaking on the board could be heard, as apparently the spirits from beyond were leaving a message. Eventually, Madame Mary would open the box, and the answers that her paying customers wanted to see appeared on the board in a ghostly scrawl. To this day, no one knows the secret of how this trick was done. Mary had a son named Albert. Albert fancied himself as an inventor, 
and apparently was not a believer in her mother's mysticism. Maybe because he knew how his mother did the tricks? I don't know. But he was a believer in how it made money. He took his mother's idea and created a small, portable version of the fortune-telling trick. It was a long tube filled with some thick, dark liquid, some say molasses, and a couple of dice that floated in the liquid. But instead of numbers or dots on the die, there were responses to questions. On each end of the tube was clear glass. When somebody turned the tube upright, one of the die would float to the top, and as it made its way through the dark liquid, it would reveal an answer. He called it the Psycho-Seer, and he spelled that S-Y-C-O-S-E-E-R. And it was guaranteed that answers obtained are equally as reliable as those received through the greatest living psychic mediums. And you know what? I have no doubt that that was true. A local Cincinnati store owner named Max Levinson loved the idea and not only wanted to sell it in the stores, but make it available for other stores. He took the device to his brother-in-law, Abe Bookman. Abe was a graduate of the Ohio Mechanics Institute. So Max, Abe, and Albert formed a novelty company in 1946 called Abel Crafts and began producing the Psycho Seer. Unfortunately, Albert Carter died before things got going. Carter, you see, had a problem with, well, the bottle. He was an alcoholic. But whether that had anything to do with his death is still unknown. While he was sober, he was a genius, Bookman told a Cincinnati Post reporter a few years later. He stayed in flop houses and was always broke, but I bought every idea he ever had, and that gave him enough to keep going. When Carter was alive, he insisted that his invention stay the way he designed it, but now that he was gone, the partners in Abel Crafts decided that they needed a way to sell it for cheaper. So they basically cut it in half, making it one-sided with one window, and they changed the name. They liked what Abel's mom called her little trick and decided to name their fortune-telling device the Psychosolate. It was decorated with 12 zodiac signs and the illustration of a gypsy fortune teller on the side. The instructions stated that, Place the left hand on this end, ask a yes or no question about the future, wait 10 seconds and turn the psycho slate over. Answers will appear on the spirit slate in the window. Still, even with this cheaper version, it didn't sell well. Why, they thought to themselves. Maybe it was because it didn't look like a fortune-telling device. It looked more like a can of vegetables. What was needed was it to look like something associated with telling fortunes. And what do many fortune-tellers use to read the future? Why, a crystal ball. So it was redesigned in a round container, and they replaced the six-sided die with a 20-sided die. A University of Cincinnati psychology professor named Lucen Cohen was hired to come up with 20 responses. And like the original 7-inch tube and then the 3.5-inch tube, the new round crystal ball sold very poorly. By now, Abe Bookman had put a lot of time and money into this thing, and it was looking like he was going to lose it all. And then one of those unexpected miracles happened. The Brunswick Billiard Company of Chicago got in touch with him. 
They were looking for a new promotional item and wondered if they could design the new crystal fortune-telling ball to look like a large eight ball. It seemed like an odd request to bookmen, but Abe was desperate to make money off this invention any way he could, so he did what they asked. Soon after Brunswick had used this as a promotional item, Abe began getting requests for more of these magic eight balls, and he gave the public what they were asking for. That was in the 1950s, and the Magic 8-Ball became a top seller, and it's sold well ever since. In 1971, Bookman sold Abel Crafts and the Magic 8-Ball to Ideal Toys. Today, the fortune-telling ball is owned by Mattel, who claims to sell a million Magic 8-Balls every year. In 2011, Time Magazine named the Magic 8-Ball one of its all-time 100 greatest toys. Slinky, it's Slinky, for fun it's the best of the toys. It's Slinky, it's Slinky, the favorite of girls and boys. And look at these. Here are some more wonderful Slinky toys. Here is a Slinky hippo. And here is a Slinky elephant. And here is a Slinky caterpillar. A Slinky toy, a Slinky toy, will run and play all day. Once upon a time in 1943, there was a naval engineer from Pennsylvania with a degree in mechanical engineering. He was working on a system to suspend sensitive shipboard instruments aboard naval vessels in rough seas. What he ended up doing was creating a simple toy that sold over 300 million units between 1945 and 2005. His name was Richard T. James, and although he was the inventor of the Slinky, his wife Betty had a lot to do with its success as well. Richard was stationed at the William Cramp and Son shipyard in Philadelphia, working with springs as a way to stabilize sensitive instruments aboard ships in rough seas, when he knocked a spring off a shelf. He noticed how it seemed to walk down a stack of books, then recoil itself once it got to the floor. He took it home and showed his wife. Betty later recalled, He came home and said, I think I've got the right properties of steel and the tension right. I could make it walk. She thought the idea was a bit crazy at first, and probably thought that he was wasting his time, spending the next year experimenting with different types of steel intentions to get the spring just right. But when he began showing his final designs to the neighborhood children, who seemed to show a real excitement, Betty began to change her mind. She looked in the dictionary for a name to call the new product and found a Swedish word meaning sleek and graceful. The word was slinky. Betty and Richard formed the James Industries with a $400 loan and had 400 slinkies manufactured by a local machine shop in which each slinky consisted of 98 coils of high-grade blue-black Swedish steel. Each one was hand-wrapped in yellow paper and priced at $1. Richard began taking them around to local toy and department stores, and at first things didn't go well. The couple decided they needed a way to demonstrate this new toy, and in November of 1945, they were given permission to do so at Gimbel's department store in Philadelphia. They set up an inclined plane to show how the Slinky could walk. Richard actually gave a friend a dollar, 
and told him to buy the slinky if none sold, so at least he could say he did have a sale. It turned out this was unnecessary, as a slinky was a success, and all 400 units were sold within 90 minutes. In 1946, the slinky was introduced at the American Toy Fair. By the 1950s, things were going so well that Richard, Betty, and their kids lived on a 12-acre estate. But, according to Betty, Richard was a philanderer, and she only stayed with him for the sake of the kids. And then in the 1960s, things took a bad turn, as Richard got involved with a Bolivian religious order, which some had referred to as a cult. He left the Slinky Empire along with Betty and their six kids, to travel to Bolivia to join the Wycliffe Bible Translators. Richard had gotten involved with religious groups years earlier and began making large donations, and by the time he left, the company was in huge financial trouble. For the kids' sake, Betty worked on reviving the company. She begged her creditors, who the company owed millions to, to work with her, and soon she was able to make the company profitable again. She heard from her ex-husband once in a while through letters as he begged her to repent, to leave the kids and join him in Bolivia. She never bothered to answer his letters. She heard that he died of a heart attack in 1974. Over the years, Betty thought that the prices people were paying for toys was horrible and insisted that the price of the Slinky and all other versions of the Slinky, like the Slinky Dog, stay at a reasonable price. In 1998, she sold the company to Poof Products, Inc. of Plymouth, Michigan, with the promise that the company would stay in Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania, and all its employees' jobs would be secure. Betty died of congestive heart failure in November 2009 at age 90, having served as president of the James Industries from 1960 to 1998. The Slinky, even today, is still a top seller. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. So if you're looking for a holiday gift, remember you can still buy all three of these toys. I'm sure they're available on Amazon or your local toy store. Or if these don't work for your children, remember, you can always give a gift card because nothing says that I care so little that I put almost no effort in thinking about your present as a gift card. Now, in reality, some gift cards are okay. Like ones for a restaurant. I mean, if you want to buy a loved one a good meal at a good restaurant, that'll work, but... Then there was the Walmart gift card, and then there was gift cards that are good everywhere. You know, a gift card that is good everywhere, well, that's just giving cash. The most thoughtless, cold gift there is. Of course, you can always ask the person you're buying for what he or she really wants, and you can tell that person what you really want. But seriously, if you're going to do that, why not just buy your own present? Because that's essentially what you're doing. I always thought the best part of gift giving was the surprise, but uh, it seems that... In the modern world, that's uh, something that's gone away. And you can give a new car as a present. I've seen the ads on TV. I've seen a Mercedes with a bow on it. I can just imagine that. Hey, honey, there's a new car out in the driveway, and there's a payment book in your stocking. 
Anyway, just a few thoughts on the holidays. But remember, whatever you celebrate, have a great one. And remember, it's not about the stuff, but it's about the people. Remember how lucky you are to have good friends and family. I'm going to forego the usual closing credits today, all the usual stuff I blab on about at the end of the show, and just want to want to thank everybody over this last year for listening to the show. It, it really means a lot. I mean, the the, the reposts on Facebook and Twitter are wonderful, and, and the emails, the emails are always a thrill to get. I mean, um, I mean to be honest, I do the show for myself. It's something that I like to do, I enjoy doing, and the fact that there are people out there that seem to enjoy what I do is just a thrill beyond belief, and, and I want to wish a happy holidays to all my friends over at the Psycon Network. Over the couple of years I've been involved with the Psycon Network, I've made some good friends over there, uh, people whom I will probably never meet in person, but uh, I hope that every single one of them has a joyous, wonderful, spectacular, sensational holiday. Like I said at the beginning of the show, I'll be back on January, what did I say, 8th? And like I said last week, it'll be an every other week show. It's just too much work to try to to do it every week. Though I'm considering um, maybe making mini episodes uh, for the off weeks or something like that. Something that the History Files had done a while back. I don't know yet. Or maybe I can find somebody else to fill in those weeks that uh, I'm too busy. It's just too much work to do it every week. And I uh, apologize for that. It's just uh, I would rather do less shows that are really good. Then a show every week when I'm not happy with the work I'm I'm doing. So, uh, okay, that's enough. Just have a fantastic, safe holiday. Feel free to email me. Those emails do mean a lot, and I always appreciate it. I'll be back next year with something new and exciting or something. And uh, take care. This is Jeff. Until 2017, saying so long. Thank you so much. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Met a girl from Bean Town. Jeff was always hanging around. She drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life will change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff